for his help. Father, all of us come to this place tonight and come to this time and now come to your word as people who have failed you this week. We needed the reminder that we just sung that your son is our only savior before you, the holy judge, and he is the lamb who is our righteousness. We thank you that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world so that we could receive your grace. And I pray that now through your word and through your Son that you would pour out your grace on us again. You would help us see not only Jesus who is our Lamb, but Jesus who is our Shepherd, and that we would long to follow him as obedient, faithful sheep. I pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're studying verses 19 through 29 tonight, but just to kind of get the background and remind you where we've been the last few weeks, we're going to begin reading in verse 17. Jesus, you remember, speaking to a crowd that consists of Pharisees and folks who actually wanted to hear what he said. He's explaining that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life For the sheep, and in verse 17, he says this, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. If you could imagine yourself sitting in the crowd where Jesus was sitting, or just imagine that that crowd was sitting in the room with you tonight, Uh, you might imagine that the crowd would have been neatly divided into two groups of people. Uh, Maybe over on this side where Bill and Rhea are sitting would be the people who really wanted to hear what Jesus had to say, and over on the side where the rest of you were the folks who were murmuring and muttering against him. Now, I don't know that the numbers were swayed quite that heavily, and I don't know that the group was seated quite that neatly, but there are two distinct groups of people sitting in the crowd listening to Jesus. One of those groups, as Jesus continues to explain who he is and what he has come to do, finds themselves murmuring and squirming in their seats, probably with their arms crossed and their brows furrowed, maybe whispering to one another, saying, I can't believe what he just said. There's one group that's murmuring, and then there's another group that is mesmerized by Jesus. They are on the edge of their seats. They don't have their arms crossed. They have their notepads out. They've got their pens out. They're listening 
and hanging on every word that he says, not wanting to miss a thing, because everything that he says seems to be like sweet honey to them from the comb. Now, the sermons that, that happened here might not be nearly intriguing enough to create those kind of polar opposite reactions, either anger or great excitement. But every time Jesus opened his mouth, that was the reaction. Either people were very excited and thrilled to hear what he said, or they were very angry about what he said. Every time Jesus opened his mouth, there seemed to be a division in the crowd. And that's exactly what we find happening in verse 19, isn't it? A division occurred among the Jews because of these words. And just noticing in passing before we get to the words that made the problem for Jesus, just notice in passing that any time the truth is proclaimed to people, it's very likely that divisions will occur. Anytime someone stands up and says, thus saith the Lord, it's very likely that there will be people who will not like what the Lord has to say. So you and I shouldn't be alarmed or surprised when we're sharing the truth of the gospel with other people if some people become irritated with us or even hostile towards us. We shouldn't be surprised if some folks become standoffish and disinterested and begin to kind of avoid us on their way to their cubicle in the morning. This is normal. It happened to Jesus. It will happen to us. And one of the responses is not just hostility or not just trying to work their way around you so that they don't have to listen to you anymore. One of the responses that you get from people when you share the truth with them is skepticism. You may try to share the gospel with somebody and they say something to you like this. You really believe all that stuff? You really believe that Jesus is going is to come back and save the whole world? You really believe that this guy Jesus walked on the water? Come on! How can you even know that the books in this Bible are reliable? How can you say you believe this stuff? After all, this book was written by all sorts of different men at different times. How do you know that these things put together all through the centuries are really true? I'm sure some of you have heard that kind of thing before from different people. It's not surprising. Because that kind of response, that kind of skeptical, we don't believe this stuff, is exactly what happens with the Pharisees in this passage. Now you remember in verses 17 and 18, Jesus has just gotten finished saying to them, I have authority to lay my life down. That's a big statement, but not a shocking statement. But then he goes on and says something shocking, and I have authority to take my life back up again. And they were surprised and they were skeptical. And you can hear them almost in the background as he's preaching, murmuring, elbowing one another and saying, this is just a bunch of mumbo jumbo. This can't be true. He's not really going to raise himself from the dead. He is a madman. That's exactly what they say. Verse 20, he has a demon and he's insane. And so in these first few verses, what Jesus is doing is again addressing that part of the crowd, the Pharisees, the skeptics who are saying, we don't believe in all this stuff you're saying. You're crazy. You're not going to raise yourself from the dead. So Jesus turns to these skeptics and he begins to address them. And that's what we're going to do in our first. There's two main points tonight. And the first is just simply this Jesus response to the skeptics. So maybe you're a skeptic tonight or maybe you live with skeptics or live around or work with skeptics. And it'll be helpful for you to think about what does Jesus say to folks who just say, ah, I don't believe in all this Jesus stuff. Well, let's just begin by, by answering the question, what was the reason for their skepticism? We've already said it, haven't we? In verse 18, Jesus says, I'm going to raise myself from the dead. And the Pharisees said, no way. We don't believe that. Jesus says, I have authority to lay my life down. I have authority to take it back up again. And the Pharisees said, that's completely far-fetched. Verse 20, 
He has a demon and is insane. Why do, why do you listen to this guy? Let's get out of here. This is crazy. And we need to be careful here because we need to understand something about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were constantly arguing with another group of guys called the Sadducees. And what was the problem with the Sadducees? Anyone remember from Scripture? Why were they sad, you see? Because they didn't believe that there was any such thing as resurrection. The Sadducees are like people today who just say there's no supernatural. Jesus didn't walk on water. There's no such thing as the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in any of that stuff. They were like the folks today who said, oh, all these miracles, those are just stories. That was the Sadducees. Well, the Pharisees were always butting heads with these guys because the Pharisees, at least in their words, believed in the supernatural. And one of the main things they were arguing with the Sadducees about was whether or not believers are going to be raised from the dead someday. The Pharisees were arguing that there is a resurrection. So when they're carping at Jesus and skeptical about Jesus raising himself from the dead, the problem is not that in their minds they didn't believe that someone could be raised from the dead. The problem was that they just didn't expect to see it in their day. Yes, we believe in miracles, but... Anytime a miracle might happen around us, we're very, very skeptical about it. In fact, in verse in chapter 9, you remember, Jesus healed a man born blind, and they interviewed him twice to get the story. It was real clear that he'd been healed, and they still didn't believe it. These are the guys that theologically were arguing, yeah, we believe in the supernatural, but when it happened in their own day and time, they wouldn't buy into it. And so they called Jesus a madman. Now, in that sense... I just want to say to you that they're not a whole lot unlike me, and they're not a whole lot like a lot of you. Most of us in this room would say, of course we believe Jesus is going to be risen, or going to come back. Of course we believe people are going to be raised from the dead. Of course we believe Jesus walked on water. Of course we believe Jesus straightened out people's crooked legs and healed the blind. But many of us would be a little bit taken aback if it actually happened right here tonight on Wednesday night, wouldn't we? We would be a little bit alarmed or even, or even shocked. Maybe in disbelief. I'll give you a story that illustrates that. I'm not advocating uh, that this story is a story that we need to um, take at full face value. I'm just telling you what happened. When I was in seminary, there was a young man who had grown up in a gang environment and he had been saved uh, in a very charismatic uh, church situation. And he decided he was coming to seminary. And he was in seminary with us for a couple of years. And my last year there um, wouldn't have been his last year, but he was... Um, kind of tired of, of being there and he wanted to, to go out and preach and he wanted to go out and do his own thing and uh, he didn't believe that the seminary was doing what they should have done to get him prepared um, and so he was leaving and on the last day of class in a class that I had with him he uh, when we had prayer time he just said I want you all to pray for me I'm moving back to where I'm from and uh, I'm going to start uh, preaching and healing ministry and he said and this is a quote don't be surprised if someday you see me on television raising people from the dead. And all of us just kind of sat back in our chairs and nobody really said anything. And the professor handled it well and um, just said, well, we'll pray for you. Uh, and we went on our way. But the rest of us thought, this guy's crazy. Maybe even some people whispered to one another what the Pharisees were saying in verse 20. He has a demon and he's insane. What is he talking about? And I think if that happened tonight, if one of you stood up tonight during the prayer time and said the very same thing, I would think the same thing. So I'm not, I'm not judging those that were there that day. I was one of the ones thinking that. And I'm not out tonight to prove that this guy really was going to go and raise people from the dead. I'm simply out to try to demonstrate to you 
that when it comes to the supernatural happening in our day and time, a lot of us are more skeptical than we'd like to believe, aren't we? And if it actually happened, we might still be skeptical. Many of us say that we believe in miracles. But if they happened right here tonight, we would be a little bit nervous. Some of us might not even come back. So, before you begin to think that I'm insane and that I'm about to try to perform miracles tonight, I want you to notice the difference between my friend at seminary and Jesus in verse 21. In verse 21, other people were saying, hey, these aren't the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon can't open the eyes of the blind, can he? See, the difference between my friend at seminary and Jesus is that Jesus had already done the stuff. When Jesus says, I'm going to raise myself from the dead, he wasn't some person, just some normal guy walking down the street saying that. He'd already just, in the last chapter, healed a man who'd been blind from birth. He'd been healing people all along. He'd been casting out demons. So this is not some, some crazy person coming down the street who's never done anything before saying, I'm going to work miracles. This is Jesus of Nazareth. And you remember in chapter 9 that the Pharisees had already two times inspected his work with, his, with this blind guy. Chapter 9, verses 13 through 15, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I wash and I see. So the Pharisees knew. This is the guy that was born blind. And in verse 15, they asked him, how did you get your sight back? Well, they didn't believe what he said. And so in verses 24 through 27, they examined him again. A second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, meaning Jesus, is a sinner. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? So you see, Jesus had already done amazing miracles. And the Pharisees had seen it and witnessed it with their own two eyes, and they still didn't believe. Now, some of them did, verse 20. Some others were saying, these aren't the sayings of one demon possessed. But most of them continued in their unbelief. And you can see that really clearly in verses 22 through 24, can't you? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now you often have heard people say in Sunday school classes or elsewhere when reading about these Pharisees, how in the world could these people have lived and seen Jesus and heard what he taught and saw the miracles that he did and still come away unbelieving? They must have just been complete lunatics. The fact that Jesus was the Messiah had been made patently clear. All the things that Jesus had done had pointed to the fact that this must be the Old Testament Messiah. And the Pharisees are Old Testament scholars. If anyone should have recognized the signs of the Messiah, it should have been them. Particularly in chapter 9, Jesus heals this man born blind, which is exactly what Isaiah 42, 7 says the Messiah would do. When my servant comes, he is going to come to open blind eyes. They knew that. That's why they were so nervous. They knew that Jesus was giving all the signs that he was the Messiah and they still would not believe. 
And before tonight, we are quick to stick our little red clown noses on the Pharisees and just write them off as complete losers. We need to remember how often we have heard Jesus' words and seen Jesus answer our prayers and sensed His Spirit guiding us and convicting us and helping us and comforting us. And in spite of all that, how we often doubt what He says. We are just like the Pharisees in many ways. And so we see tonight again that the Bible is not a two by four that we use to bash the Pharisees and other folks over the head with. The Bible's a mirror that we hold up in front of our faces so that we can see the blemishes on our own skin. And just think about the last two weeks in your life. Just to help you apply this. Have there been times just in the last two weeks where you've doubted the Lord? You've doubted his watch care. You've doubted his provision. You've doubted some promise that he made in his word. You've doubted that he was really going to do good to you. You've doubted that he was really in control. Just in the last two weeks. I bet if most of us have a good enough memory, we can say, yeah, a bunch of times. Just today, even, we've doubted the Lord. Every time we disobey, we're doubting the Lord. We say that we know that God wants what's best for us, and then we disobey him. We're doubting that he really wants what's best for us. Have you in the last two weeks had some decision to make and you rushed ahead and did God's thinking for him without asking him what he thought about it? Many of us have. We've seen the Lord do his works. We've heard his words. And yet, Jesus might well say about us what he says to the Pharisees in verse 25. I told you and you don't believe. Or he might well say to us what he says to them at the end of verse 25. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. You've seen me work. But verse 26, you don't believe. There are many, many times every day where I find myself knowing what Jesus has said and having seen what he has done and not trusting him. Doubting him. Now, every Christian is going to experience doubt. Everyone that's in this room, if you're a believer, you're going to experience doubt in the Lord in one way or another. You may doubt the Lord's promises. You may doubt the Lord's goodness to you. You may doubt that the Lord really is concerned about you. You may think he's forgotten you. You may think that maybe he's really not in as great a control as his word says. You may even doubt your own salvation. It's normal to doubt. It's not right to doubt, but it is normal to doubt. All of us will experience it. And when we doubt, we must not every time we we experience any doubt say to ourselves, well, I must not really be a Christian because I don't believe right this minute that the Lord is going to take care of me. Don't doubt your salvation every time you find yourself doubting the Lord slightly. That would negate the assurance that Jesus is going to give to us in verses 27 through 30. But having said that, we need to take seriously what Jesus says in verse 26 before we get to verses 27 through 30. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. If our problem is a consistent not believing and trusting the Lord, the problem is that we're not his sheep. That's what he's saying to the Pharisees. So if we live our whole lives as skeptics, doubting God's promises, doubting God's uh, Christ's sufficiency to save us, trying to save ourselves, trying to fix all our own problems, if we live our whole life that way, Constantly running and trying to fix things ourselves, running and trying to save ourselves. Then the problem is that we don't believe because we're not of his sheep. We're no different than the outright liberals who will hold up this Bible and say, Jesus didn't really walk on water. Jesus wasn't really born of a virgin. We're no different than those folks. Even though we may say 
Yeah, we believe that the Lord did all these things. He just can't do it for me. We're no different than the Pharisees if we live our whole lives as skeptics. These Pharisees who had outward religion, but deep inside they had no real faith in the Lord. So we need to be careful to be skeptical. Our skepticism should lie. We should not wonder if in the end we find ourselves not of his sheep if we live our lives as skeptics. So just by way of encouragement tonight to help you to trust in the Lord afresh if you've been doubting him lately, listen to what Jesus says again in verse 25. I told you. Has Jesus told you some things? I mean, he's telling you things right here tonight, but, but you've been in his word before. Has Jesus told you things? You've heard what he said. Isn't Jesus trustworthy? When he tells you something, won't he always do what he says he'll do? So if you're doubting in the Lord tonight, just listen to Jesus in verse 25. I told you. That's good enough. I told you what I'm going to do. I told you that I'm in control, and that's good enough for you. And listen to what he says at the end of verse 25. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Jesus is saying to these guys, hey, haven't you seen me work before? That's what he's saying to us tonight. Haven't you seen me work in your life? Haven't you seen me answer prayers? I'll do it again. I haven't abandoned you. I haven't forgotten about you. I'll do what I said I will do. Haven't you seen me give sight to the blind, he says to the Pharisees? Haven't you seen me lay down my life for the sheep? Why would I abandon them if I'm going to lay my life down for them? Haven't you seen us looking now from a past perspective, haven't we seen that Jesus really has risen from the dead? If he's really risen from the dead, he can do anything. So we should not doubt. Because of Jesus' words that we've all heard and his works that we've all seen, there's no reason for us to doubt him any longer. And just as one more aside before we move on to our second main point, or not an aside, but one more add-on, if your particular problem is that you doubt your salvation maybe constantly or maybe just at times. Listen to verses 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. If you really want a Jesus sheep, no one is going to be able to take that away from you. Now, that brings me to my second main point. The first point was, how does Jesus respond to skeptics, people who are doubting him, people who don't really believe that he can do what he says he's going to do? The second thing that he does here is now he turns to those who are listening, those who are mesmerized, those who are saying, I want to hear more. And he tells them about his assurances to the sheep. He gives reassurance to his sheep here in verses 26 through 29. Now, look at 26 one more time. This isn't an assurance verse, but but I'll explain why I want to read it again in just a moment. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. So why is it that someone does not believe? People don't believe because they don't belong to the Lord. They're not his sheep. So if that explains why someone would not believe, then we can just take the negative words out of the sentences and probably understand why it is that someone else would believe. In other words, if we just invert the sentence we can understand why it is that we do believe. Let me read what it would say. You believe because you are of my sheep. See what I'm saying? They didn't believe because they weren't of his sheep. If we do believe, it's because we are his sheep. You believe because you are my sheep. Now listen carefully what he didn't say there. He didn't say you believe because you've had all your intellectual questions answered. That's not what he said. 
He didn't say, you believe because you've seen lots of signs and wonders. And he didn't say, you believe because you've been able to put your hands into my scars like Thomas did. That's not why we believe. If you believe, it's not simply because you know things in your head or you've seen Jesus do miracles or you've touched his flesh, which none of us have. Why do we believe, Jesus said? Not because we've got lots of proofs standing right in front of our faces, but because we're his sheep. He's made us his sheep. In other words, faith in the end is not just an intellectual thing. It's a spiritual thing. Faith is not just an intellectual understanding of facts. Faith is a spiritual sense that those facts are true. A spiritual nose, you might call it. That you read the Bible and you just say, yes, of course, this is true. I don't have to have some professor at some university come and tell me all the reasons archaeologically why this is probably the right stuff in the Bible. I just read it and the stamp of the shepherd is on it. And I just know by a spiritual sense that God has given me that this is the master speaking. You know Christ is real and you know that you belong to him the same way that the sheep know that the shepherd is real and that they belong to him. Sheep don't believe in their shepherd because someone has come along and give them lots of intellectual arguments to prove the existence of the shepherd, right? Sheep just know, hey, I hear the shepherd's voice. And when I hear his voice, I know he's there and I know he cares for me and I'm going to follow his voice. And that's the way believers are. We don't have to have all the answers in the world. We should search out the answers, but we don't have to have all the answers. We believe because the shepherd has spoken to us by his spirit in his word so that we followed and we became his sheep. Now, yes, whenever Christ speaks to us, he speaks to us through his word, through objective truth. So we're not just saying anyone in the world who's never read the Bible can say, oh, I know I'm Jesus sheep. But we're also not saying that anyone who's read the Bible and says, yeah, I think this is factual is really a sheep. The key is whether or not they hear the shepherd's voice the key is whether or not instead of just saying the lord is the shepherd we can say without a shadow of a doubt the lord is my shepherd can you say that it's not just an intellectual i know that the lord is a good shepherd yes he's wonderful i know it my mama taught me that ever since i was a little baby that's not the question the question is do you know and can you say for sure the lord is my shepherd that's what jesus means if you Believe because you're his sheep, then you believe because he has done something for you. He has become something to you. Let me just point out to you again that the Pharisees saw the same things that everyone else in this crowd saw, and they did not believe. They didn't not believe because they didn't see the miracles. They didn't not believe because they couldn't touch Jesus' flesh. They saw the miracles, and they touched Jesus' flesh, probably some of them. The reason they didn't believe was not because they didn't have the facts, but because they weren't of his sheep. They'd never been born again. You know, Jesus says in John 3, unless you've been born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You can't see and understand spiritual realities unless God causes you to be born again. And we might just as well say the same thing about the shepherd and the sheep. You cannot hear the shepherd's voice and know that he is your shepherd unless you are born again. Something has to happen that is more than just mental understanding for someone to be a believer. If someone asks you tomorrow, why do you believe in Jesus? There's something inexplicable about it, isn't there? 
And you can't give them six answers that will satisfy their curiosity and that will fully explain what's really going on in your heart. Why do you believe in Jesus? Well, you might say, well, because I've found that with all the research that's done, the facts in this book are true and the history is reliable. Amen. I'll say the same thing. But in another way, you believe because you believe, right? Why do you believe? Because I just, I just know there's something in me after having been in His Word that just knows that this is the Master speaking. I can't explain it, but I just know it. And we need to point out to them the facts. We don't need to just say, well, I just know the Lord is the Lord and that's the end of it. We need to show them why we, we see that in the Scriptures. Because if we don't, then the Spirit will never have anything to work with in their life. The Spirit always works this supernatural belief through the Word. But ultimately, we have to say, I believe because somewhere along the line, I was reading this Word for a long time, but somewhere the Lord opened my eyes. Somewhere along the line, he unstopped my ears so that I could hear his voice. Somewhere along the line, all these facts that I've known all my life suddenly made sense like they never made sense before. And I entered into the gates of paradise. That's not easy to explain to other people who've never experienced it, is it? But that's what happens to us. Faith is understanding facts and then having those facts supernaturally applied by God making you one of his sheep. This is important as you try to share the gospel with other people, just as an aside. We need to give them the biblical facts so that the Spirit will have something to work with when he chooses to work in their hearts. However, we need not think, and we must not think, that just because someone can regurgitate biblical facts to us, that they must necessarily be a believer. The question is not do they know the facts, but do they cling to the facts? Do they love the truths about Jesus? Do they bank their lives on these truths? Do they live and die with these truths, or do they just understand them? There's more to faith than just understanding. The question is, do we have a sheep sense that goes beyond mere rationality and says, I know that the Lord is my shepherd? That's Genuine Christianity. That's what I believe is happening when Jesus says to the Pharisees, hey, the reason you don't believe is simply because you're not my sheep. Had the same opportunity to hear the same facts, but you're just not my sheep. Now, as he moves on into verses 27 through 29, these are famous verses that give us assurance. And the the question I want to ask is, if we have that sheep sense, if we have that gut I believe because the Lord has opened my eyes and unstopped my ears. What is the result of that? What is the result when we know that we know that the Lord is our shepherd? Well, verse 27, Jesus tells us, my sheep hear my voice. That's the result. When the Lord becomes your shepherd, you begin to hear his voice. Now, lots of people hear sermons Lots of people read Bible passages. Lots of people sit in on Bible lessons and they're not Jesus' sheep at all. So all they're hearing is sermons and Bible passages and Bible lessons. But the sheep hear those same sermons and those same Bible passages and those same Bible lessons. And when they hear them, they say, that's my shepherd's voice. I can hear him speaking. They don't even realize that they're listening to the teacher or the preacher anymore. They're going, hey, God is speaking to me. This is great. What does he say? I wonder if that's happening for you tonight. Are you just hearing uh, me give a lecture about what it means to be a Christian? Or are you hearing the Master speak to you? 
the sheep, when they read the Bible, get something more than simply deciphering grammatical constructions. They do something more than simply try to understand theological words. They do something more than simply try to to read sentences and come to logical conclusions or to interpret historical events correctly. They do all of those things. They do all of that mental work. But what's also happening is a spiritual second nature to them that simply knows this is the voice of my master. And that's one of the ways of telling whether you're really his sheep or not. And when you hear the Bible, you do not merely hear a historical summary or moral treatise or a psychological analysis of people's lives. But when you hear the Bible, you hear the very voice of God in it. And how do you know that you're really hearing the voice of God? You respond as though God were speaking to you. If you hear the Bible and you don't respond as though this is really the word of God, you don't obey what it says, believe what it says, trust what it says, then you have to wonder about yourself. And all of us are going to struggle and all of us are going to sin. But if our genuine habit is to continue to read the Bible and just listen to it as a nice little talk, then something's missing. We don't hear the shepherd's voice and we do not, verse 27, follow him. Something is missing. But if we do hear his voice and we are known by him, and we do follow him, and verses 28 and 29 are some of the most comforting verses in the Bible, aren't they? Many of you have had these verses memorized for longer than you can remember. And Jesus is reminding us in these verses, very simply, that those who are the sheep can never, ever, ever lose their salvation. If you're one of God's sheep, nothing will ever change that. Now look at verse 28. I give them eternal life. Notice that he didn't say, I will give, or I may give, or I could give, or I plan on giving someday. He just simply says very straightforwardly, I give. He's speaking in a very definite way here. Eternal life is as good as given to us who are the sheep. I give them eternal life. Currently, presently, it's happening. And that's why he can say in the next part of the verse, and they will never perish. That's a definite guarantee too, isn't it? They will never perish. People say, never say never. Well, God can say never. And when God says never, God means never. And he says about you, if you're his sheep, you will never perish. Someone might come along and say to you, or you might even think yourself, well, yes, the sheep will never perish. However, there are some people who might have once been sheep, but they're not sheep anymore. So they stopped being sheep somewhere along the way. And so this verse is still true. The sheep don't perish. But some people somewhere along the way stopped being sheep because they sinned so badly. Well, listen to the end of verse 28 that answers that. No one will snatch them out of my hand. It's not just that when it's time to go to heaven, they won't perish. It's that all the way along, the power of God is keeping us unto salvation. If Jesus once has you in his hand, you'll never be able to get away. The devil can't snatch you out of his hand. The world and its temptations cannot snatch you out of his hand. Someone sinning against you and wrecking your life cannot snatch you out of his hand. And you yourself cannot jump out of his hand by your own sinful desires. In fact, if you're really a sheep, you will never want to jump out of his hand hand once a sheep always a sheep or more eloquently no power of hell no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand we are safe in the arms of jesus
And I just want to give you a few other passages that teach this same idea so that you see it from several angles and know that it's not just this one verse that we're coming up with a crazy theological idea from. Philippians 1.6 says this, Paul writing to the church at Philippi, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm confident if God began something in you, he will finish it. God never begins something that he doesn't finish. So if we we lay that over top of John 10 tonight, Paul is saying, I'm confident that if God lets you in the sheep pen to begin with, he's not ever going to let anyone take you out of there. He's going to keep you in there and make sure that you are well fed and well taken care of as his sheep. I'm confident of that, Paul says. Romans 8.30. This is a longer verse. You've got to follow a train of logic here. But listen to what Paul says there. For those whom he foreknew, he being God, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, if in eternity God predestined you for salvation, and if in time present He called you to Himself and you responded to the call of the Gospel, and if therefore responding to the call of the Gospel, He justified you, declared you right with Himself, then Paul says, these whom He justified, He also glorified. Past tense. Glorified meaning He brought them to heaven and gave them eventually their new bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. Past tense. That hasn't happened yet, has it? There's no one that's been glorified yet except for Jesus. No one in heaven has their body yet until Jesus comes back. But he speaks of it in the past tense. Why? Because it's as good as done. If you've been called by God and you put your faith in Christ and therefore been justified by God, declared right with God, then your glorification, your home in the new heaven and the new earth is as good as done. So that Paul can speak of it in the past tense. You cannot lose your salvation. And Ephesians 4.30 is another one. Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit has sealed you. You ever, you ever been somewhere where something is closed up and they seal it tight to where things can't get in and things can't get out? That's what the Holy Spirit has done. He has sealed you so that no one can get in and ruin your salvation and you can't get out and ruin it. You are sealed For the day of redemption, meaning the day when Jesus returns. So, those who are Jesus' sheep can never, ever, ever lose their salvation. Having said that, just briefly, I want to insert a parenthesis here and uh, correct a misconception that many people have. Many people in our day, um, and among the worst, um, are Baptist-type people, um, which is me included, Um, many people in our day have twisted the doctrine of once saved, always saved to mean that as long as a person has made a profession of faith and been through the water, that they are secure no no matter how they live the rest of their life. They can go the rest of their life and never, ever, ever act like a Christian again. But as long as they made the decision and went through the water, then they're secure. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. That's a dangerous, dangerous, false doctrine to say that someone can make a snap decision and then that means that they are surely saved and will never lose their salvation. That kind of teaching leads many, many people to walk contentedly and without warning straight down the road that leads to destruction. 
and never to realize it until the end. So we need to realize that, yes, John 10.28 teaches definitely that once you are saved, you are always saved. But we also need to realize that John 10.27 teaches that once you are saved, you will live like you are saved. The question is not whether or not you can lose your salvation. The question is who is really saved. Who's really saved? Jesus says is the people who hear my voice, the people whom I know, and the people who follow me. And John 10.1, you remember two weeks ago, posed the possibility that we could have been in the church all along and yet not have come through Jesus but climbed up some other way. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. We said that when we, when we looked at that verse two weeks ago, that there are a lot of people running around with sheep costumes on who never really were believers. Some of them with not very good sheep costumes on. Some people have really well-done sheep costumes that they seem to have paid a lot of money for. And there are other people who are just kind of straggling along with cotton balls taped to their face here and there. Some people you can tell very readily that they're not Christians, and some people fake us all out all the way through. But the point is, Jesus is saying, not everyone who's in the sheep pen is really a sheep. Only those who have come into the sheep pen through me, the door. So, just as a side note, remember, once you're saved, you're always saved. But once you're saved, you will also live like you are saved. And you will not forever forget the Lord. You may struggle, you may doubt, you may backslide, but you will not forever leave the Lord if you are one of His sheep. That's another thing that it means that no one can snatch you out of His hand. The devil can't snatch you out of His hand and run you all around the countryside for the rest of your life doing His work if you're really one of the sheep. If you're really one of the sheep, you will stay with the Lord and you will be with the Lord in the end. But that's just an aside. The main point tonight is this. If you are one of Christ's sheep, You will hear His voice. You will follow Him in faith. And you will not be among those who fall away. Because you have the double promise of verse 28. Jesus says, No one will snatch them out of My hand. And verse 29, My Father who has given to Me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. In other words, if you don't trust Me even, believe that the Father, the the Heavenly Father who created the entire universe by the word of His power... He's greater than all. He's greater than all put together. He has you in His hand too. And there's no one in the world who has the power or the authority to snatch anyone or anything out of the Father's hands. So let me just ask you, do you hear the shepherd's voice tonight? Have you grown accustomed to hearing His voice? And are you trusting in His grace? If you are, then know that you are safe in the arms of Jesus. And you will never, ever, ever lose what He has given you. However, if you do not hear His voice, if you are not sure that you're really following Him, would you not listen to His voice tonight? He's been speaking. Would you not yield yourself to Him and just let yourself hear tonight what He's saying? And believe what he's saying. Let me just read to you again what he's saying. And we'll let Jesus have the last word. Verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verses 14 and 15. I'm the good shepherd and I know my own. 
And my own know me, and even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verses 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I am. Jesus is saying to you tonight, the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I hope that you hear his voice and I want to pray that you do. Father, I pray that it would be that everyone in this room would hear your voice tonight and would follow the good shepherd. God, some of us Uh, know that we know that we know that we are believers. And I pray that tonight has simply been a confirmation and a reassurance. Some of us are sure that we're believers, but lately we've been doubting you in regards to any number of things in our lives. And I pray that again tonight would have been a chance to strengthen our faith, to hear Jesus say, have you not heard what I've said and have you not seen what I've done? Remind us, Lord, of what we know and what we've seen so that we will not doubt anymore. And God, some are here tonight and they know that they aren't accustomed to hearing your voice. They sit in messages like these and they understand intellectually, but there's no heart change. There's no love for the truth. And I pray that you would help them to be honest with themselves tonight. And I pray that as Jesus has spoken, that they would have maybe for the first time began to begin to really hear his voice, not just the voice of the preacher, not just words on a page, but his voice speaking through the scriptures into their hearts and that they would tonight respond and begin to follow in faith the good shepherd. Wherever each of us is tonight, Lord, give us faith to trust your son. And we pray now in his name. Amen. In John ten seventeen, and while you're finding your place, let me just go to the Lord and ask.